Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. Whenever and wherever you're listening, we just wanted to extend the warmest of welcomes. So kick back and relax as we continue through our sermon series. Well, good morning on this rainy Sunday morning. I hope you're enjoying the rain and also you're really wet at the same time. I thought about wearing um, what most of you are probably wearing today, which is pajamas as like the outfit of the day. But I knew people would show up and we would show everybody what it looks like to get dressed for the day. So definitely a chilly day. Uh, I'm enjoying it. And um, I just want to give a, a shout out. We've got some really great volunteers, like especially in a rainy day to come early and we've got leaks all over the place and getting people ready for you or trying to make coffee or our tech team that's all volunteer or we have a guest, you know, helping us out this weekend, lead worship and everybody else is here as a volunteer. They're fantastic and I'm so thankful for all of them and the little gremlins that we get to deal with like you saw uh, earlier. I want to encourage you that if you are not volunteering, this is a great place to just get involved and be in community. There is a um, recent stat that came out. Uh, Barna did a survey um, right now kind of with churches coming out of this COVID season or phase of life that we've been in. And uh, they've discovered, and I think we're finding it to be actually really true here, that about 30% of every church pre-COVID, their core has left. Like their core, like the people you would call to be like, hey, I need your help or to volunteer in an area of ministry have left the church. Either they're just not coming back or they're not ready to come back or comfortable. And I understand that comfort is this difficult thing. We're all trying to manage and figure out what feels comfortable, what doesn't. And we want to be caring about that. Or they've moved away or they're upset and just disconnected, or they've just decided to go and be a part of another faith community. And so we are seeing this just nationwide as this thing that's taking place. And honestly, here, we've been completely, you know, devastated, I could say. It's a, it's a big word, but it's true. But as far as our volunteers go, so it's really hard to do things. So, And I enjoy doing lots of stuff too. Like I went and made coffee this morning, so we would have something warm for you guys to drink when you guys came in. Totally cool. I'm in. But that's also a great spot to like hang out with somebody and we can do it together. Make sense? So if that's something that kind of stirs in you and like, hey, I would like to kind of re-engage in some community, that really is what this building community vision looks like. It's following Jesus, making friends, and having fun. And when you're serving with people, that's what you do. You get to have fun. You get to make some new friends, get connected, and you get to follow Jesus in the same way, living that stuff out. So there's my, you can call the plug. I wasn't even planning on talking about it, um, but just really extra thankful today because I know on like a rainy day like this and just the things that go on, um, I know it can be like cumbersome. And so I want to talk about that for just a moment. All right, so now to what we're going to talk about today. We've been walking through Matthew. This is your first time with us. Welcome. We have been on this uh, expository, which means we're kind of going verse by verse. We're chopping this up. We're in chapter four through this book of Matthew, which is in the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament, and it's one of the gospels, which is an account or the life of Jesus. And so we've now just had Jesus fully enter into the story as an adult. He's just now starting his ministry. Uh, He's gone down to this river. He's been baptized. And uh, then he's led off. And we'll see this right here. Oh, if you have your journal, we are in page 49. You can grab one of these on your way out. If this is your first time with us or your first time physically with us, I want to get you one of those. You can take notes and stuff. So this is where we're at in chapter 4. 
Chapter 4, verse 1, just to catch us up to where we're at. Then Jesus, this is right after he's being baptized, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's crazy. Pastor Ken talked about that last week, that whole idea of like, that, that, that's, what a one-liner. Okay. <laughs> and after, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Then he became hungry. This is also nuts to me. Ken didn't talk about this as much, but I love how it says, then, then he, like after 40 days and 40 nights, suddenly he decided, nah, I'm hungry. Like, <laughs> I would, that would have been way sooner for me. I don't relate. <laughs> and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. And this is our scripture for today. And he said to him, uh, he, he had him stand at the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And now this tempter, Satan, quotes scripture himself. He will give his angels orders concerning you, and on their hands they will lift you up so you do not strike a foot against stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, let me quote some scripture to you. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So we find ourselves in this season of wilderness. He has uh, been uh, taken off and he's going through the wilderness. And Pastor Ken, last we talked about the significance of the timing and what that represented. And again, all throughout Matthew, we're seeing these correlations of Old Testament and Jesus being this new Moses. We're going to continue to see that even as we get into kind of the bigger stuff of the Sermon on the Mount in the next chapter. A couple of things, though, that the wilderness does for us that we can see is ultimately it exposes what's inside of us. It has an opportunity to expose what's inside of us. I've noticed talking in the last couple of months um, to different couples that, you know, if you were already married, if your marriage was already difficult and you come into a season of, of wilderness, it's that more challenging. It's just that much more challenging. If you already had a, a proclivity towards some sort of, some kind of temptation in your life, this, this season or a season of wilderness where you find yourself in a wilderness where you're just distraught or stressed or to the edge and on the edge of things, that it's, you're just more prone to that. It's like, a, it's like a tube of toothpaste. When pressure gets put on it, it comes out. And the things that are inside of you, you actually see the things that are inside of you. That's what the wilderness does. It exposes us what's been inside of us. But it also does this. Being in the wilderness creates a sense of desperation. This sense of desperation. This is why... You know, the first temptation of turning stones into bread was a wonderful setup of a a temptation because it's this desperation. I'm hungry, like 40 days, 40 nights, I'm hungry. Uh, I have this desperation to feed myself. Also, why does it create this sense of desperation? It's because we love to be in control, right? We love the sense of control over the circumstances in our lives. We like having our hands on the steering wheel. And when we turn right, we love that our car actually goes right. Or when we turn left, we love the feeling that it responds to what we just asked it to do. But unfortunately, in a season of wilderness we, where we feel so out of control, where there's this semblance of control that's now lost, we're much more prone to like reach and grab for like the easy thing when we're just not ready, when our character isn't ready. 
And it can hurt us and it can destroy us and we'll grab the quickest thing that's going to give us fulfillment. That's why we're more prone to temptation in the wilderness than we are before a wilderness season. And let me tell you, be aware of this. In fact, that temptations actually become greater and then they become stronger when you're in a season of wilderness. Become greater and they actually gain power and strength the longer that we live in that space. And so what do we do about this? Like, what do we do about this? What do we do about the temptations that are so common to us but seems more difficult to withstand? Well, fortunately, like I mentioned in the beginning, Jesus himself experienced, we just read, Jesus experienced these temptations in a wilderness, in a season, in a time of wilderness. And these temptations that he faced gives us some semblance or some kind of guidance, some direction on how we might actually also face these temptations. And the beauty of Jesus is that he's actually the image of the invisible God. That he's the picture of, of what, we, what it looks like to walk with God and to be with God and to, to the, the, the things that he says and does resembles. And not only in our salvation, but he's also a model for us. And so just over the next couple of minutes, we're going to look at these temptations, or at least this temptation this week that he faced, and see if there's something that we can glean from this that might help us face these similar temptations. Now there's uh, four Gospels, and three of the Gospels, they give the accounts of the temptations and the story of Jesus going into the wilderness. And this first temptation that Pastor Ken talked about this last week is the temptation of pleasure. I'm going to use all P's. I'm just going to help you out. It's like a pastor thing to do. I actually learned it from Ken. Um, This is the temptation of pleasure. It's the temptation to like seek the miraculous, the spectacular, the effective, the practical, the immediate, the the thing that is immediately impressive um, to fulfill this need that you just want. This, that might seem, make, that right there might make you feel like you seem successful or believes it taps into this desire that's inside of you uh, to be seen great. And Jesus himself stood there in the middle of this temptation, face to face with the tempter. And he says, hey, right here, you're hungry, man. Why don't you turn these stones into bread and show us what you can do? Why don't you just feed into that pleasure thing, that, that thing and just grasp it? And we see, we see ourselves telling ourselves, um, that we can do the same thing. We're just going to get what we immediately want. And we seldom um, go for the thing that we actually need. Why? Because we love the immediate. And Ken talked about this last week as well, like about our character. Sometimes we're just not ready. You know, when we uh, have the temptation of pleasure, we'll grab that thing before we're ready for it. And it collapses. We love the spectacular. We love the thing that's going to uh, make us be who we think that we want to be as fast as we can get it. If there's a line from A to B, we want to go there now. We don't want to go through the paces. And Jesus came face to face with this temptation, but God didn't just meet this immediate need to make him popular. Jesus decided, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to just meet this immediate need to say like, yeah, look at, I'm showing off, I can do miracles. I'm just going to go ahead and take this thing that I need. He gave us an, an example. This interaction, this encounter with the tempter, this is the very beginning of his ministry. This is the first things that happened, the work he was going to do. Now, there's a reason why he wanted to show us what it looked like to come face to face 
And we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks that he was getting into our mess and he was actually living the life that we live and experiencing the things that we experience. And he then put himself in this position and was put in this position to be face to face with the desire for the immediate, just like we have the desire to get what we think we want, but not necessarily the thing that we actually need. And so Jesus answers the tempter with this quotation from the Old Testament, quoting from Deuteronomy, which is where he answers all three of these temptations. This one was in Deuteronomy 8, 3. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He said, man shouldn't live on bread alone. It's better to obey the word of God than to seek the things that you might immediately want seeking these things of pleasure. Jesus is saying, don't trade. Don't trade what you want now for the thing that you will need later. Don't don't trade that when you're looking at the thing because you have this desire uh, that has been given to you, which can be a wholesome desire and and a want, right? Don't trade that and not go through the proper paces Uh, to make it what it's supposed to be later in the future. Use me to feed you. Give you an example. We're full of desires. And I think that we're full of many healthy desires. You know, uh, we're full of all kinds of desires uh, to get seen or appreciated or to feel loved or to feel intimacy. And what we can do is we can seek pleasure really fast and we do it in inappropriate ways. And God gives us what we need and the timing that we do it. And when we're just seeking pleasure, we'll do it in form of, you know, um, uh, gossip uh, that can fulfill some sort of thing or, uh, or some sort of uh, needy um, uh, action and that we're really just looking for attention, but we're doing it in appropriate ways or some sort of lustful action. And we're just doing those things in inappropriate ways because we're feeding this immediate need for pleasure, this thing that we want. And if we indulge in this, if we engage in it, and we just go to get the thing that we want, and we miss out on the thing that's better for us later, that's what Jesus is saying. No, 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 no. If you want to know what it looks like to come face to face with temptation, it's being resolved enough to say, I'm going to refuse to trade what I want for the future instead of just going for it in the now. To refuse the thing that you want now for the thing that you're going to know you're going to want and know the thing that you'll need later. But the tempter wasn't done with Jesus. So this is the second temptation. The devil then took him along into the holy city and had him stand at the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will give the angels orders concerning you and their hands won't lift you up so you do not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So remember this other temptation starts with a P. I'm going to give you some clues to what this temptation would represent. First, we have the temptation of pleasure. Now this is a temptation that is the only thing that keeps you from celebrating others' success. You can go to the next one. It's this clue, too. It's the only thing that keeps you from initiating an apology when you know that you were wrong. It's the only thing that keeps you 
from initiating an apology when you know that you're only 5% wrong and the other person was 95% wrong. It's the thing that keeps you arguing your point after the fact that you realize you don't even really have a point, but you keep arguing, right? It keeps you from admitting that you've lost. It keeps you from admitting weakness. It keeps you from admitting that you don't know what, oh, that you need help. It keeps you from, to, to, it keeps you, causes you to power up when you should be opening up. It can, keeps you from admitting that you don't even know what you're doing, even though everybody else knows that you don't know what you're doing. It's what uh, causes you to cheat before you allow yourself to lose. It's what causes you to lie about your past failed marriage. It's what causes you the fact that you never even really graduated. It's the thing that causes you to always have the final word. And it causes you to buy things to impress people who aren't even paying any attention to you. <laughs> Anybody got a guess? Yeah, that's right. It's good. Yes, it's pride. The second temptation that Jesus faces is the temptation of pride. Now, this isn't like the type of pride that's like, I'm proud of my kids, or I'm proud of my niece and nephew, or my company that I'm working for, or the artwork that I'm producing, or photography, or company. Uh, it's the pride, uh, it isn't the pride that inspires people to greatness. This is that like yucky pride, that thing inside of you. It's in this uh, C.S. Lewis, when he's talking about this, made this extraordinary statement. He says this, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. You've been a victim of it. I've been a victim of it. Your family or maybe even your current family or your relationships at work or somewhere, and, and maybe even you've dispensed it. You've been the dispenser of this. The problem with pride is that we can see it in other people in like a second. <laughs> we can spot it from a mile away, but it is almost impossible to see in the mirror. It's almost impossible to see in the mirror. It's almost impossible to see in the mirror, and that means that there are people in your life in your sphere of influence that have actually been victim of it. And it's because we associate pride with this uh, over-arrogance, and we go, well, I'm not over-arrogant. And so we don't think that we have this pride problem, but pride is insidious. It's ugly. And so let's talk about something that we already know. First of all, pride, it diminishes you. It diminishes you. And this is um, a surprise to some extent because we think that pride, pride like puffs us up and makes us bigger and greater and, uh, you know, stronger. But in fact, the ter terminology we use, the, the pride puffs up. Pride makes us smaller. It actually makes us smaller and worse. It actually diminishes you and I. Specifically, pride always diminishes your capacity to admit. To admit what you need to admit. Your capacity to acknowledge what you actually need to acknowledge and your capacity to apologize when you need to apologize. 
And we've all had these strange kind of like emotional um, moments, you know, where you know you need to say something and you're like sitting on the counter in the kitchen and you like know that there's tension there and she's over there working on something. You know that you should apologize for that thing you did and your brain's just telling you it's easier to not, right? This is hard work. This is really hard work to like have to give in and you're like fighting this. It's so emotional. It's weird how we fight like our pride and, you know, the, and then we just give the excuse of like, I hold grudges, you know, or I'm a, I was more right. And, and we sit there and say, okay, there's this battle going on and there's a battle going on inside of us. And, and, and we come back to this main point that we actually really struggle with and that we've actually uh, uh, sit down there in front of them. Or we've been in these situations where we sit down in front of somebody and they have then discussed this point back and forth and they've actually trumped our point. Like, they won. Like, they actually beat us, but we won't admit that they were more right, and you were wrong about that. Like, you made a statement that you thought was fact, and then someone Googled it. You ever been there? <laughs> you're like, well, Google's wrong, right? <laughs> you, you're laughing because you've been there, right? It's like these layers of layers and layers of emotion that we go through when it comes to pride, and it's difficult to make ourselves say what we need to say. And we know what we need to say, to others. And then not only does it diminish us that way, but pride diminishes our capacity to say what needs to be said. For some of you, there are people whom you love. You love them, and they are dying for one positive comment. They're dying for one positive comment. I've struggled with the same thing. Like, I can tell you right now, I'm a workaholic. I'm, I'm, I'll stand up. My name's Larry. I'm a workaholic, and I work on it. But that just doesn't get rid of it. There's things that I actually have to say and do, right? So, like, it's really difficult. I have to tell myself and tell my pride to go away to tell someone else who's working hard, man, I see you working hard. I see that you, like, showed up, right? And you're like leaning in and you're doing hard work. And I actually am really thankful for that because my pride wants to say, like, what do you want? Like a high five for showing up? Or like a high five for like doing your job, right? Or like doing things to survive. And that's how what this battle is that goes up with our pride. And there's people in our life. I, I can tell you that it was kind of fun. It was just happened this last week. But um, I'll tell you with the work incidents. Uh, just uh, one of our staff came up and said they're transitioning spaces where they're doing their office. And they were like, oh, man, I just took down my letter from you off my wall. And I was like, what letter? And they're like, the one that I act like you didn't write to anyone else. And it was just a note because my pride told me like, hey, get over yourself. I wrote a little note about how important they were and how I saw them doing things. And that was so fantastic. And I so appreciated them. And they were dying for that, Right. And my pride could have kept me from doing that. Our pride keeps us from doing those things. Or, or think about in your, your space, your home, that a kid or a daughter just wants to hear sweetheart or your niece and nephew just wants you to come up and compliment them and say, like, I see you. Good job. Like, I love you. I'm proud of you. Good effort. And our pride can keep us from saying what we need to say. You, can, you can't not only that, but you can't hear then when you've got a lot of pride what needs to be heard. So first of all, it's really hard for us to say what needs to be said. Secondly, you don't hear what needs to be heard. People are like trying to say it. 
Maybe you've heard this before. Like, I'm just trying to tell you this and I just can't get through. It's like there's a giant wall there. All my words just bounce off of you, right? It's because we can't say what needs, uh, you can't hear what needs to be heard. They even say it. In some cases, there's sometimes that, the, that the, you can't give the things that need to be given. We just can't give the things that other people need. And when you say you can't, I understand for a lot of people, they struggle with this. They really can't because pride is that powerful. And we have to recognize that. It actually diminishes our ability to do what we know we need to do. And that's why it actually makes us smaller and not bigger. Pride diminishes our capacity to love. It diminishes our capacity to love and to receive love. Did you know that? Not only does it diminish our capacity to love other people and people who we feel like are below us or above us or around us, but it actually keeps others from loving us as well. And so it almost goes without saying that pride essentially crowds other people out of our life. It crowds the people out when we are full of ourselves. Think about it this way. When you are full of you, there's no room for anyone else. When you're full of you, there's no room for anyone else. And the thing that's so insidious is that you don't even know when it's happening. We don't even realize what's happening. And then what can happen is other people can just look at us. And then this, I think, is even worse. They're not even angry at some point. They're not even, like, hurt at some point. They get, you maybe you've met this person or maybe you find yourself in this place where you're like, I'm not even upset or hurt or mad at that person. You know what I feel? Pity. That's like the worst. I think that's the worst. Like all of a sudden it's just, I just feel pity for them because they're so full of themselves that they don't realize they have nobody, that they have nobody, that, that people around them feel so pressed up against a wall at work, at home, walking on eggshells around you because the least little thing that's going on is going to get some sort of conflict going because you've got this uh, pride, this aggressiveness, and you're just going to be aggressive and people around you are scared to death and so there's no room for anyone else and you don't even know it because pride, it it deprioritizes everything, everyone else in the room. But as long as as long without crowding other people out, as long as we're crowding other people out, the only the other things that get crowded out by pride because of our pride is that pride actually has the potential to crowd God out as well. We have to recognize that, that if it's crowding other people out, that it actually has the potential to crowd God out as well. Um, King David wrote this psalm, Psalms 10.4. He said this, In his pride the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. And it's because prideful people seek what's best for themselves. And prideful people just seek what's best for me. And he says this pride, this wicked man, he doesn't seek. He only seeks himself in all of his thoughts. There's no room for God. In the Hebrew, actually, right here, the verse actually means that there is actually no God in his thoughts at all. That there's no God at the end of the pride spectrum. And the bottom line is that in pride, and we all know this, is that it shuts, that prison is a pride and it shuts us in and it shuts God and others out. So we see this pride, opportunity, temptation for Jesus when he's 
you know, standing up on top and he could jump off. And that's a prideful thing because he could just be like, you know what? I'm going to do me right now. I'm going to be the ruler. I'm going to jump off. I'm going to do all these miracles. I'm going to be the most popular person. Everyone's going to follow me. And that's what the tempter was trying to tempt him into doing. So you can just float around. You can jump off and then fly over everyone and be like, I'm the greatest. Which this was where just God turned everything upside down on its head. Where Jesus was coming to say, no, like the first is last and the last is first. He came to serve that that this wasn't an important thing to do. Yes, he could, but it was important to show, no, I'm here to put others before me. I'm here to put other things before me. And no one would opt for this deal of pride on purpose. No single person would opt in for this. We struggle with this. And I don't think anyone just opts in to do this on purpose where, you know, nobody feels close to me. Everyone feels like shut down. Everyone feels like they're walking on eggshells around me. Nobody would do that. Nobody would say, I, have, I want such a strong dose of pride that when it comes to the end of my life, that everyone's like, I don't know, did they, did they love anyone? Like there's no real connection relationship here. That's, that's no one's goal. It's no one's goal to wonder if anyone ever, if, if you ever loved them or if I ever loved someone. And maybe you haven't thought about this, but this invitation and this temptation to follow Jesus and his choices is an invitation or the invitation to follow Jesus is actually an invitation to unfollow pride. So following Jesus and his response and not leaning into this opportunity to being greater than, to being over everything, into pride, was actually an invitation, is actually the invitation to unfollow pride. Jesus taught and he modeled radically, radically liberating version of humility to not do the things that he wanted to do, to not puff up, to not be greater And it's applicable for all of us, regardless what you think about Jesus or not. Because when he showed up, he showed up to a world that was seeking this religious and political power-seeking order. And they wanted him to come in with the sword and be over everything and bring up this great rise army to conquer the, the, the things, the persecution that had happened from the past. And you see somebody, you know, he says, uh, let me just refine greatness. This was the example of Jesus. He says, let me just refine, redefine greatness for you. To begin with greatness is defined by how well you serve people, not how well you are served. He could have served himself. But we see this example, this redefinition of greatness, is how well you serve people, how passionate you are about doing for others and not getting others to do for you. Greatness is defined by how well and how passionate you are about doing for others and not getting others to do for you. In other, in other words, have the same approach to life in your relationships with one another. It talks about this in Philippians. Paul does. In your relationships with, in life, have the same mindset of Christ. Therefore, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit of mind, and do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, there's our word, value others above yourself, not looking for your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And then right here, in your relationships, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, our model, who being the very nature of God, he didn't consider himself equally with God, something to be used for his own advantage. He could have done this. He didn't need to, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So there it is. That's, that's the answer to this temptation. It was don't test. Don't test. And so we get to respond. If we're going to respond like Jesus, is we, we get to respond to other people and say, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? Well, I don't know. She's really, really mad. Or he's really, really mad. Or they've really, really offended me. Then ask yourself. Don't let your pride puff up. If they're, if they're like that, then how can I serve them? Like, how can I see them right now? And we might say, serve them? They owe me an apology first. Like, they get to go first. I know, but I'm going to follow Jesus right here, and I'm going to be humble and, and practice humility. And see, if you go with me, there, there's going to be this pride thing that we're going to try to push down. How can I serve them? So how can I serve them? But, but they feel like my enemy. We can say, yeah, I know Jesus talks about that later too. He says, love your enemies. I know it's crazy. It's this really radical thing. But how can I serve them? How can I serve them? Just as Jesus served me. That's radical. It's radical. And that's my point. It's a radical approach to humility. And he says he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness. In other words, he chose to get what he did not deserve. He chose to get what he was not to take, what he was entitled to. He said, I deserve it, but I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to take it. I'm entitled to it, but I'm going to not opt for it. So a question for taking home, a take home for us this week to talk in the car or this week or in your community group in your notes, a couple questions to write down. You can snap a picture. You can write this down. Just for yourself, do you really want pride to control you the rest of your life? And dig in. Because if you're saying, I don't have any kind of pride in my life, (laughs) I'm going to be like the blind spot person. Like, hey, there's your blind spot right there. We all have pieces of this temptation to be prideful. And we can find it in its worst in the wilderness moments. So be in watch for it. Do you really want pride to be control of you the rest of your life? Do you want pride to continue to drive what's happening in your marriage, in your relationships? Sit there and ask yourself that question. Ask that to somebody else and then you get punched in the face. <laughs> Do you really want pride to continue to drive what's happening in your marriage and relationships? And then just a statement that you can just say over yourself, that you can hang on a mirror or you can put in your car or you can walk into and read before you walk into a conversation with someone and just simply say, pride doesn't have to be my master. Pride doesn't have to be my master. I'm getting ready to 
to go into the situation where I, I know this is what is needed. I need to come to this table of reconciliation in this moment. I know what's needed. They just, even though I'm so frustrated with them and they made this mistake, or even though, you know, they're not meeting my expectations, whatever that looks like, I'm not going to let pride be the master of me. I'm going to recognize that at least we showed up. At least we did this. At least I value you. At least I see you. No matter what any of the other things that you've done. So will you stand up and we'll worship in response as uh, we let the Holy Spirit do what he does in places like this. And this concludes this week's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed spending some time with us. And if you haven't already, like and subscribe to our YouTube and find us on Instagram at NGATECF. See you next week.